0: It's summer. And for most folks, that means cocktails in the sun, seersucker suits, and a quiet household while the kids head off to summer camp. Now, hopefully I'm not the first one to tell you this, but today's world, yeah, that's not really happening. Tina Shea Blanchette is the founder of The Learning Lab, a nonprofit organization and education space located in New Orleans. I love their motto, so I'm just gonna use it. Where school ends and learning begins. Each year, the Learning Lab runs two summer camps, Genius Camp and ABC Camp. What would normally involve a mix of outdoor and indoor learning with hands-on team activities has now had to move fully virtual. But to say it makes it sound easy. Tina Shea is also a consultant for school districts around the country, helping educate teachers on how to better use technology in the classroom. Her expertise, pretty in demand right now. She also had to not only stand up to local government guidelines, but for the health and safety of everyone at the camps, choose to operate in opposition of them. I caught up with Tina Shea already two weeks into camp. We talked about what she's learned so far and how the work being done today will help shape the way technology can be used in classrooms in the future. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. I thought we could just begin by having you tell me a bit about the learning laboratory and the summer camp for kids.
1: Of course. Um, I started the learning laboratory about six years ago, and basically my mindset was that I wanted to create a place where I could do all of the cool things that I want to do with students that don't necessarily fit into a traditional classroom environment. I'm a former high school math teacher. I taught high school math for about 10 years before I became a um, full-time trainer and consultant. And so when I'm not running the lab, I travel around the country and I train teachers on how to use technology in their classroom. Classroom. and so you know for me to stay current and to really you know have lots of great information that I can share with teachers it really helps for me to have the lab where I can you know try the latest things whether it's with technology or with hands-on activities um, we do field trips and travel with the kids and so that was really like my primary idea is that I wanted to be really innovative and not be limited in the same ways that you are when you're teaching in schools and a lot of times having to teach to the test or you have time constraints. So yeah. it's just a really great place to be when you want to get creative and have fun with kids and of course get them excited about learning.
0: What's an example of that of, of something that, you know, will light up a a student's imagination or learning that just can't be achieved
1: as well in a classroom as outside? Um, Our flagship program is Genius Camp. And the reason why we call Genius Camp, Genius Camp, is not because your child has to be a genius to be in it, even though we consider all of the kids to be geniuses. We do it because we have this um, thing that we do called Genius Hour. And Genius Hour is based on the 20% time that Google employees get. So basically at Google employees have 20% of their time that they can use on any passion project, right? And some Googlers use that time to take a nap or, you know, play with their dog outside. But other Googlers have used it for really great projects like Gmail, for example. So Gmail is an example of a 20% time project. And so applying this idea to the classroom means that we give students um, a certain amount of time where they can learn about anything that they're interested in. So every day in Genius Camp, we do genius hour where the kids basically go through the research process and the writing process and we encourage them to learn all they can about any topic of their choice so the first stage is just kind of getting them to brainstorm about what it is that they want to learn more about and we hear from the kids all the time that they've never had a teacher ask them what do they want to learn about right like the idea is usually look here's what you need to learn we have this amount of time let's go right so just the idea that they can learn about something you know that they're interested in is really intriguing for the kids. And then at the end of camp, we have what we call the genius fair, where the kids get to basically show off their prototypes, show off their projects, and basically show their parents and community what they've been passionate about and how much they've learned about it. Wow. So, so okay, you had sort of
0: been doing a hybrid approach to in-classroom, out-of-classroom learning before COVID and, and all of the health concerns hit, and then it hit. And you're in a position where you need to move everything virtual. Can you tell me a little bit about that moment, that decision, and how that helped you to sort of reimagine your approach?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely not an easy decision to make to to be clear. You know, I actually I participated in a call with the mayor of New Orleans where she basically, you know, told everyone that, you know, the city's camps, the city's summer camps were going to be reopening and they were gonna kinda do where they weren't doing anything online, right? Like they were gonna do it all in person, but it would be right. with social distancing and masks and you know, if a kid gets COVID then And you're gonna shut it down. And I was just listening to all this, and I'm thinking to myself, that's a lot. And then I also had to think about all of the parents that I had spoken to. And there were parents that I had spoken to who told me straight up, you know, you can have camp if you want, but my kid isn't coming, right? So just knowing, you know, in an abundance of caution and making sure that everyone is safe, not only our kids, but also the volunteers, because we do have an all-volunteer staff. And the last thing I would want is one of my volunteers to give of their time and then go home sick. You know, so with all of those considerations, it just seemed like the best idea was to go ahead and go virtual because that way, you know, regardless of what happens, we would be able to continue. And that's really important too, is that we wanna have consistency and continuity for these kids. And we know, you know, for a four week camp, uh, if if, some, if there's an outbreak, if someone shows up with COVID, we have to shut down for 14 days. Well, I mean, yeah. 14 days is That's half it. the camp, you know? Oh, so wow. all of those things kind of went into us just deciding to do it virtually. And then of course I, I had to stop and think, well, if anyone can do this, I should be able to do this, right? <laughs> this is what I do. So it's kind of like, you know, time for me to put my money where my mouth is. So, yeah. you know, we're two weeks in and it's going well. So, you know, I think we made the right decision.
0: Wow. But just to have all those voices in your ear on, you know, the having to potentially go against what the city government is doing and hearing from parents and hearing the inner voice that is telling you what you think is right for the kids in the program, that's got to be – a lot to sort out in a very
1: little bit of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, of course, you know, we've had people reach out and say, well, you know, I would have done camp this year, but I was really looking for something in person. So the truth is, is that when you make decisions like this, there's never going to be a decision that everyone is going to be pleased with. Right. And so you kind of got to weigh everything and decide, you know, what's going to be number one, the safest option. Right. Because safety is still our number one um, concern, you know. And so when it comes to doing something that's safe and doing something that's going to serve the the needs of the people who are you know coming to you it really does come down to you know virtual for us
0: yeah so two weeks into virtual what were some of the unforeseen issues
1: kids on camera like <laughs> <laughs> again I'm not in the classroom anymore but I'm sure classroom teachers have had to deal with this you know so, you know for months now when you get a kid on a webcam I mean, it's like, it's showtime, right? (laughs) Yeah. So you have kids doing all kinds of stuff. Like they'll go grab their pet and play with their pet on screen. Or, you know, just they might not put the camera at the perfect angle and it'll be really weird. Like just kids on camera is hilarious. (laughs) So that's one thing for sure that I don't think I've really... Realized In terms of having kids working online, like working in Google Classroom, which is what we're using, I have experience with that. So we made sure to kind of set some um, ground rules and set some norms about what, you know, our expectations were. You know, we asked kids to use the commenting feature in Google Classroom only to ask questions about the work. So that way, you know, a lot of times um, inexperienced teachers will just kind of open it up and the kids are like crowding out the content with just you know, hey guys, well blah, 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 And then of right. course, heaven forbid, you know, kids can start being mean to each other and that kind of thing. So we, we kind of use the video chat as the social aspect, right? Because we know that the kids want to connect with each other. So that's what the video calls are primarily for. And then when they're in Google Classroom, it's all about the work that they're doing.
0: So I would imagine... Every cycle, you're kind of learning a little bit. You're trying to improve. What are some of the things that you're taking from your first cycles to improve upon for the next cycle?
1: Well, one thing that when I started this camp, when I I decided that I was going to go virtual, the two words that I had in mind were fun and flexible. And I know that sounds really simple, sounds really straightforward, but I have to tell you, as someone who has been working with teachers through this, those are the two things that I felt like were missing when it came to the work that kids were doing online for school, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of schools have been saying to families, okay, look, here's this work that your kid has to do, but they don't have to do it. It's optional, right? And right. when you say that to a parent, When you say that to a child, if if it's optional and there's no like incentive, there's nothing fun about it, there's nothing interesting, why would a kid opt into that? (laughs) Right? So if we I wouldn't want, do it. Exactly. And I mean, it's, you know, even as adults, they're just like us, right? We're not going to do something that we don't have to do unless we want to do it, right? And So how do you make kids want to do something? You make it fun, right? Yeah. So that's one piece of it. And then the flexible piece is more for families and for parents. So another thing that I heard a lot from, because, you know, I have friends who have kids and they'll call me and ask me questions. Of course, a lot of my friends were getting like a crash course in Google Classroom. And that's what I do primarily. Is train teachers on how to use Google Classroom. So I had a lot of people calling me, like, what what am I supposed to be doing? (laughs) Right. And the thing that I noticed, like a trend that I noticed, is that parents are feeling very pressured to do things by a certain time. You know, some schools had the expectation that kids were going to be on Google Classroom every single day at a certain time. They might be doing Zoom calls or Google Meets daily. And when you do that, you're not really taking into consideration what family life looks like and what it, how it's changed, right? You have parents who are now working from home. They may yeah. have multiple kids at multiple schools. They may have kids who aren't school age, so they might have a three-year-old running around where they're trying to support their 10-year-old, right? If you've ever taken an online course at a university, it's very rare that you come together and do things at the same time, right? Yeah. Your, your professor posts something and they'll say, okay, look, we want a response by this Time, right? So it's not, you don't have those same restrictions. But because everybody is so accustomed to the traditional classroom, then they think in terms of, okay, we have to do this, we have to meet at 10 o'clock, and everybody has to be there at 10 o'clock, or this activity, we're going to give you an hour to do it. And that just stresses parents out. And so I wanted to make sure that we did things in a way where parents understood look, if you can't make the Zoom call, it's okay, because we're going to give you everything in Google Classroom that you need to do. If you can't do all of your Monday work on Monday, we also give you a list of weekly deliverables, okay? So we have a checklist that we give the kids every week that says, boom, this is everything that needs to be done this week. And we use that checklist as basically their entrance ticket to the virtual field trip that we have every Friday. So that's kind of like our incentive, right? We know that kids like to be incentivized, right? And it also relieves a lot of the pressure off of parents to have to say, look, you need to do your summer camp stuff, right Yeah and
0: there's value in that space um, and in that flexibility that you can create for a family. I think you know I think w- one of the things that's most interesting about this time is just how there's a third factor in the classroom now there's there's not just the student, not just the teacher, there's the family and what they're going through and what their work situation is and how many kids they have and what else is happening that the classroom becomes, Uh, very crowded conceptually uh, with all of those different dynamics. I think a fourth dynamic that is really interesting that you've addressed is, you know, this idea of disparity of tech access in the home. Um, And as the pandemic hit, I think it forced a light on the issue that there's really been in in tech for a very long time, but that not all, all homes have the same access. And when tech is that lifeline to your education And you're missing that, the the harm that that can do.
1: First thing I'll say is that I believe for a very long time that technology is a survival skill for today's learner. So before COVID, right, before everybody was trying to go virtual, I was kind of, you know, sounding the alarm everywhere I went, like, look technology is not something that we just do to spice up our instruction as teachers. You know, there was a time where that's all it was. Okay, kids, let's do a PowerPoint. Yay, we use technology, right? (laughs) (laughs) But now what I always say to the teachers I train is, Tell me what your students are going to do when they leave here that's not going to require them to use technology. Even yeah. if they go a job, apply for a job at McDonald's or Walmart, which should be clear, we don't even know how long those jobs are going to be available, right, right? Due to automation. But even if they were going to apply for those jobs, they're going to do it at a computer terminal, right? They're not even going to fill out a paper application anymore. If they're working, they're going to be in front of a computer screen all day ringing people up. So this yeah. idea that kids can make it through, you know, their K-12 education and not come out of it tech savvy and then somehow Be expected to be successful in life or post-secondary education—that's not a thing anymore. So I think one of the benefits of COVID, I would say, one of the few benefits of COVID, is that we are being forced to kind of deal with this elephant in the room when it comes to technology and education. It's something that has always been, at least for as long as I've been an educator, it's always been something that is important. But a lot of folks have put it on the back burner simply because it wasn't seen as a necessity in the way that it is now. What I realize is that different parts of this country have different access to the internet, right? So if you don't live in a um, urban area, then there's a good chance that your internet is sketchy at best, right? And that's something that I don't think... I live in New Orleans, right? So I don't have a lot of issues with the internet, but it's something that I don't necessarily think about when you have kids who live... I mean, you drive an hour away from New Orleans and you are decidedly in the country. (laughs) And it's so easy to
0: forget because it becomes like oxygen or light that you once you have it, you sort of forget life before it.
1: Exactly. And I mean, another thing to consider is that, you know, I I just think of myself because, you know, again, I am an educational technologist. So most people would think, okay, she's just got a ton of computers laying around her house. I have three mm-hmm. children, right? And so when COVID hit, My daughter, my youngest daughter, she's 13 and she's in the seventh grade, and she goes to a technology school. And so at that school, they were all issued laptops. So I didn't have to buy a laptop for her because she had a school issued device. Well, they collected those devices right before COVID. So she came home, she no longer had a laptop. Wow. You know, so that's the other thing is that, you know, you had a lot of homes that may have a desktop computer that everyone shared pre COVID. But now if you have parents who are telecommuting, Or on Zoom calls all day, now that device isn't available. And, you know, who has the extra money laying around right now to buy a tablet or to buy a computer? So, one thing that I, I always try to communicate to folks is that at this point, it's not even necessarily a socioeconomic thing, right? Because in the past, it would be like, well, okay, this family doesn't have enough money to buy a computer, but you can be financially stable and not have five computers exactly for your, right. you and yeah. your four kids, you know? In a few months,
0: a lot of school districts are going to be facing that question of when to reopen, if to reopen, how to reopen whether to, in what forms to continue this online learning, what advice do you have for those school districts and those teachers in thinking about the sort of re-entry period?
1: Well, the first thing I want to say is let's let go of this idea that the kids are going to be behind I heard that language being used a lot in these last couple of months where the teachers were just so afraid, parents were so afraid. Oh, my gosh, my child is going to be behind. And the question is, behind who? Right? Like, yeah. if everybody is in the same boat, if all these kids are, you know, in the same situation, then I think that we need to let go of this idea that we're going to be behind. Another thing to consider is, you know, something I've been saying a lot lately is that we want to be careful about the language that we use to describe the situation. You know, folks are talking about distance learning and virtual education and, um, you know, homeschooling. And I don't think any of that language is appropriate to describe what we're doing. What we're doing is crisis teaching. We are in an international crisis. This is not just a crisis in terms of the pandemic. This is a mental health crisis because people are dealing with losing their jobs, kids are dealing with losing, you know, the social aspect of school. And so I think everyone needs to give themselves some grace and just be really um careful about trying to duplicate what happened in a traditional classroom environment because that's not what we have right now. And so we really have to recognize that, you know, things are very different and people are dealing with a lot of emotions, people are dealing with a lot of issues you're going to have students and parents who are going to get sick and they're not going to be thinking about what's happening in Google Classroom you're going to have parents who are trying to figure out how to make ends meet and so although these are these are all things that we have to deal with even you know outside of a pandemic but when we're talking about a worldwide pandemic then we have to recognize that no matter what we do things are not going to be normal i think that's so right that's such a good point you talk about
0: the new normal and it's hard to picture what the world will look like far in the future as a result of this but how do you see education in the future being reshaped by some of the experiences we're having today
1: well, I think that technology is going to become less of a peripheral tool and more central to how education is done. I think that, you know, there are a lot of teachers, to be fair, there are a lot of educators who get it. There are a lot of educators who have been using technology, who've been using learning management systems. Hopefully, we can see this as an opportunity to learn skills that are going to be transferable. So the I think the tragedy would be if, you know, teachers are learning all about using learning learning management systems and teaching kids online. And then once we go back to quote unquote normal, okay, kids, open up your book to page 17 and write in your notebook. And, you know, I I think that there are some technological ways to do things that hopefully teachers will realize, well, this would work even if my kids were in front of me, right? Like one of my friends who's a teacher told me that she found that some of her struggling students really turned around during this time, because these were the kids who often flew under the radar in the classroom. But now in a virtual classroom, it's really hard to do that. You know. And they're getting that individualized attention that they wouldn't necessarily get when you only have 90 minutes with 30 kids. So there are some benefits to using these online tools that I expect will carry over even when teachers and um, students return to schools. Exactly.
0: Where can people learn about the Learning Laboratory and where can they learn about you in your consulting work?
1: So you can visit the Learning Laboratory's website at L-R-N-L-A-B-N-O-L-A dot That's short for learnlabnola.org. And then from me and my consulting, you can visit my website. And it's really easy to remember, MsBlanchett That's M-S-B-L-A-N C-H-E-T dot net
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much Tina Shea. I'm really grateful that you're helping us try to figure out this strange and bewildering time and uh, that hopefully we'll all be uh, better off on the other side. Thank
1: you for having
0: me Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown music came from Tyler Litwin and Synchronize. If you're a fan of The Growth Show, and honestly, even if you're still on the fence about it all, trust me, go ahead and subscribe to the show. We have some incredible conversations coming your way soon that you won't want to miss. As always, I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and stay safe out there.